Welcome to Tisky Sour. We have loads of great stories for you tonight. We're talking about Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe, her first press appearance. She's not impressed with Liz Truss. We also have a super interesting interview of a Ukrainian refugee currently in Poland. And we're going to bring you the latest from the Tory party spring conference. In particular, the, the worst speech I think I've ever heard in my life. And round two of Money Saving Expert versus the Tories, our new comrade who keeps popping up on the television. I am joined back by popular demand by Barnaby Rain. Barnaby, welcome back to Tisky Sour. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Let's get straight to our first story. Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe has given her first press appearance since returning from six years' detention in Iran. And she took the moment to disagree with her husband, Richard Ratcliffe, who had credited Liz Truss with helping to get his wife home. I grant what Richard said to thank the uh, foreign secretary. I have, I do not really agree with him on that level. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you that because I have seen five foreign secretaries changed over the course of six years. That is unprecedented given the politics of the UK. I love you, Richard respect whatever you believe but i was told many many times that oh we're gonna get you home that never happened so there was a time that i felt like do you know what i'm like no i'm not even gonna trust you because i've been told many many times that i'm gonna be taken home but that never happened i mean how many foreign secretaries does it take for someone to come out five it should have been one of them eventually so now here we are what's happened now should have happened six years ago uh, i think we all know this is, I'm assuming this is going to be public knowledge of how I came home. It's fair to assume. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to mention, I don't know the details. But what took me home now on the very same day, 17th of March 2022, that is the very same day that I left London, 17th of March 2016, to go on a two-week holiday and I never returned on, on the flight that I was coming back home with. But I think it should have happened exactly six years ago. I shouldn't have been in prison for six years. Also speaking at the press conference was the daughter of Morad Tabaz. Tabaz remains in custody in Iran. He has Iranian, UK and US citizenship. And Tulip Sadiq also spoke. She is Nazanin's MP and had campaigned with Richard Ratcliffe for her release for years. I owe it to Nazanin to ask questions about why it took so long to bring Nazanin back and why the debt wasn't paid for so long, which we know was key to releasing Nazanin. So I've written to Tom Tugendhat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, to ask for a review into what happened in Nazanin's case. The two things I'll be asking the Foreign Affairs Select Committee to look at is, first of all, an incident that took place in 2013 when three Iranian officials came to Heathrow to negotiate the repayment of the historic debt that we owe Iran, or owed Iran, it's now been paid, they were arrested at Heathrow Airport and then detained in a UK detention centre. I spoke to Jack Straw yesterday, who said he never got to the bottom of why that happened. And Jack Straw said he firmly believes that saga contributed to important people in the Iranian regime wanting to take matters into their own hands and make sure there was more direct action for the repayment of the debt. The second thing I'll be asking the Foreign Affairs Select Committee to look at if they accept the inquiry is to look at why there was a deal made last year, which then fell through and the money wasn't paid either. And I want to know why the deal fell through, why it took so long to pay the debt. And I also want to look at the wider issue of taking hostages, which Iran has done. 
That comment about the negotiators who came over in 2013 is new, and it seems pretty significant. Back then, the Iranians were trying to negotiate with us, but when the negotiators came over, we locked them up and deported them. And it's important to note, this was despite them being given visas and their visit having been agreed with the foreign office. The suggestion made by Sadiq is that this moment empowered hardliners in Iran who then wanted to get tougher when it came to getting back the money they were owed. And so they resorted to hostage-taking. So you can see why Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe is feeling pretty pissed off. Barnaby, I feel like there are many, many more layers to come out of this story. We're only just starting to discover, I think, what really went on. But it's interesting that Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe doesn't seem in any mood to roll over. What did you make of, of the comments at today's press conference? Well, I think it's shameful that a debt Britain agreed it had to pay, there was no dispute here, it was a debt for money the Iranian government spent on tanks that then weren't delivered because the revolution got in the way in 1979. That debt has been owed for decades. And Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe said today that she was led to believe, she was basically told within weeks of her being imprisoned, that she was being held in regard to this debt. And that if the debt were paid, it would make a real difference to her freedom, it would free her. And yet we had so much bluster and antagonism and needless suffering caused by that bluster and antagonism from the British government. And at the end of it all, they pay the debt anyway. So it looks uh, pretty absurd. There's also a broader issue here. Part of the trouble in paying that debt was because it had to be paid while respecting sanctions. Uh, We are now entering a period of realignment in which America talks about reopening the the, the, deal, basically signing on the dotted line on the JCPOA negotiations program with Iran on its uh, nuclear technology. Britain now pays this debt to Iran. It looks like in a moment of rising tensions with Russia, a possible realignment, you've also got Americans in Venezuela uh, uh, playing more friendly with the government there than they have in the recent past. A possible realignment is taking place, which I think is quite important. It's taking place, though, in a context of massive sanctions now being imposed on Russia, causing already enormous suffering in Russia, a country where last year 20% of the population was below the poverty line. Sanctions have done enormous damage in Iran as well, did huge wrecked havoc with Iran's ability to deal with a COVID pandemic, and also prevented Britain from being able to uh, pay this debt quickly and uh, get Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe her freedom. So I think there are big questions raised here about sanctions and about the bluster of treating Iran as a country out in the cold for years, then paying them a debt that you owed them all those years, with your tail between your legs as Britain, and British foreign secretaries haven't suffered. The one who made a stupid comment, Boris Johnson, is now Prime Minister, but Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe suffered, paid a price for that. I've seen some horrible comments today on Twitter. I don't like to focus on like trolls on Twitter, but I do think it is worth responding to it. People saying, why is she being so ungrateful? The tweets I saw, anyway, maybe these aren't things I should trust, but was suggesting she got British citizenship relatively recently, sort of in the last decade or so. I don't think this is relevant, but they were arguing it was. And now, you know, Britain has paid to get her out of her the the country she was born in, and now she's complaining at Britain. Well, the context that's super important here is, one, you don't blame people for what country they're from anyway, but two, the reason she was held hostage was because Britain didn't pay Iran back 30 years previously. And then we find out today, when the negotiators came over, agreed with the foreign office, by the way. So the foreign office said, you know, they knew these Iranian negotiators were coming over, but I think presumably they hadn't communicated probably with the home office, and then they got arrested and deported. And you know, as Tulip Sadiq suggested, I think it's very, very persuasive. That would have empowered hardliners in Iran who say like, these guys are taking the piss. We are not going to get back this $400 million 
through negotiations. Our last negotiators we sent over, they arrested and deported. So maybe let's, you know, I'm not justifying it. Obviously, I don't think taking people hostage so you can get paid back is a decent thing to do. But it does seem like it is a consequence of British incompetence or malice, if that's what it was, not just Iranian rule-breaking or norm-breaking. So, yeah, I think a lot more is going to come out from this story. We will, we will keep coming back to it. Julian PD tweets on the hashtag TiskySour. Great to see Nazanin taking no shit from anyone. Clearly a massive problem for Johnson when it was his gaffe that justified her conviction in Iran. Britain did nothing until a war started and now needs to change the oil supply. Yep, so sort of speaking um, to what Barnaby was speaking to there. That's something which... I mean, it'll be interesting if that comes out explicitly, if the reason Nazanin is out now, not six years ago, is because six years ago, we weren't particularly interested in Iranian oil, or at least the Americans weren't. Now the Americans are. That means we can, you know, go around their sanctions, which are, by the way, you know, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, massive victim of that sanctions regime, probably not the main victim, because there are millions of people who went hungry because of that. And as Barnaby said, there are millions of people who got terrible COVID care, because Iran was subject to sanctions. So this is probably the most visible consequence of that sanctions regime. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the most harmful one. Let's go on to our next story. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has entered its 26th day with no real endpoint in sight. The city of Mariupol has been hardest hit by Russian bombardments. Authorities report that missiles have been hitting the city every five minutes and there is no gas, electricity, or water for the approximately 300,000 people trapped in the city, nor are supplies able to enter. Russia had given Ukraine a deadline of 5am this morning to surrender Mariupol. In exchange, they promised to evacuate civilians before sending in humanitarian aid and medical assistance. But Ukrainian MP Dmitry Gurin said Russians don't open humanitarian corridors, they don't let humanitarian convoys enter the city, and we clearly see now that the goal of the Russians is to start to create hunger in the city to enforce their position in the diplomatic process. If the city does not surrender, and the city will not surrender, they won't let people out. They won't let humanitarian convoys into the city. That deadline came and went, so Mariupol is still under siege. Earlier today, I got the perspective of someone from another Ukrainian city that's under siege, Kharkiv. Alexandra Lanko is a journalist who fled the city in the days before the war started. I come from Kharkiv. I was born there. I grew up there. I'm 26. And I literally spent all my life in Kharkiv. Kharkiv is on the border with Russia, unfortunately. First, I came to Lviv, actually, before war started. One week before war started, my uncle from the Netherlands, who usually was very calm, and quite skeptical about Putin attacking Ukraine, or sorry, I don't want to say Putin, about Russia attacking Ukraine. He suddenly called me and asked me to leave. And when he called me, that looked like a bad sign because that was something very unexpected. So my partner and I went to Lviv first. And on the second day of war, we went to Poland, which seemed to me like the worst decision that I have ever made. And it kind of still feels the same way. I really didn't want to leave Ukraine, and I felt like I was betraying Ukraine. I'm not sure if past tense makes sense here, because I still sometimes feel this way, but now it is a bit better since I found things to do here in Poland. Very interesting to hear that you, you regret leaving, because normally we're hearing in, in the news people who are struggling to leave places like Kharkiv, places which are you know under bombardment by the Russians. So w what would you have done differently when you say you regret leaving? What do you mean? 
no normal person wants to experience war, and this is obvious. And I'm not one of those crazy people who actually wants to sit somewhere in a bomb shelter all day long. That makes no sense. And I'm not um, a doctor. I'm not in military. I'm not a volunteer. So I don't believe that it would be useful. So when I say that I regret leaving Ukraine, it's not about me regretting leaving Kharkiv because I would be useless there, I'm pretty sure. But it's about me regretting leaving Ukraine. All of us, we are very grateful to Polish people for all the support that they're showing us. And we will never forget this. Forget this. Um, at the same time, when I see Ukrainian flags everywhere, it is touching and it is very upsetting because it kind of reminds me, it's like, you know, a sign that something is wrong. When you see flags of your country somewhere abroad, everywhere, and people write, we support Ukraine or we stand with Ukraine, that looks very wrong. This is not something that any normal person wants to see, you know. So yeah, I would just love to be with my people. Earlier in the interview, you you sort of started talking about Putin's invasion and then corrected yourself to to a Russian invasion. What was that about? Why are you keen to say this is a Russian invasion, a not Putin's invasion? Right now, the, in Western media, from what we see, um, that Russians don't mean Putin, and Putin does not equal Russia in general. And can I swear a bit? Is it you possible? You can swear, it's fine, yeah. Okay, so this is bullshit. <laughs> this That doesn't work this way. Putin doesn't bomb Ukraine sitting on a plane. Putin doesn't, you know, touch some special buttons somewhere, you know, sending missiles to Ukraine. Putin is sitting somewhere in a bomb shelter, in a bunker, you know, shitting himself probably all the time because he understands now that there is no way out of this situation for him. But these are Russians who support what he's doing. And Putin didn't happen on the 24th of February when Russia attacked Ukraine. Putin happened 28 years, 22 years ago, you know, and Russians have been watching this all this time and they didn't do anything with Russia becoming a fascist state, basically. You know, everything that Russians say right now. I got a message from an acquaintance from Russia. She comes from Ufa. And like, I think that was fourth day of war. She told me, although you hate me right now, I really wish for you to survive. Now, uh, I mean, thank you, I suppose. How do you react? So, and all the surveys that are being organized in Russia right now, they show huge support of what Putin is doing right now with Ukraine. And so that really doesn't let us speak about Putin existing separately from the rest of you know his people. I suppose an, an argument against that would be that you know Putin is authoritarian in his own way. People who go out to protest end up in in jail, independent media is being shut down. And I suppose also from a pragmatic angle, people would argue that we want to, I suppose, divide Putin from the Russian people because that means it's more likely that well, either he falls or he decides that this war has to has to end. Do you not see that as potentially a, a strategically useful distinction to make between Putin and, and the Russian people? I think we already passed that point where it made sense. I think it's already too late for such things. I understand Europe I understand the US, I understand all this pleas and foreigners trying to say, Russians, you're, we know that you're good deep down and all of that. And of course, there are good people there and there are honest and brave people there and we see them. Everybody who is protesting right now against the war, they are our heroes and we see them and we are grateful forever. You know, the same thing as with Poles and all the countries that are helping us right now. But if 
your protest is just in your kitchen with your friends, maybe, or you just post a picture on your Instagram saying no to war, this is not protesting. Could we talk about how you see this war developing? Are you, are you essentially hoping for, waiting for a, a Ukrainian military victory? Yes. I do believe that Ukraine will win this. The only question is at what cost? I know that they have the power to destroy cities. And this is what we saw in Chechnya, and this is what we saw in Syria as well. You know, this is what scares me. My parents, my grandparents are staying in Kharkiv in a bomb shelter. They haven't showered for several days now. You know, there was no water yesterday. And my grandparents, from what I know, they haven't had any electricity for 10 days or so. I haven't talked to them for two weeks, probably. You know, so I really, I really think that Ukraine can win this thing with the support of our allies. But I also think that Europe and the US have to give up this narrative that Putin doesn't equal Russians, because this is very harmful. We're not going to be, I think that everyone has to understand this, we're not going to be friends with Russians for a very long time. This is the end. This is the end of peace on European continent. Like, I don't know if there is going to be a third world war, um, but um, for sure, it's never going to be the same. And what, from your perspective, does this imply for negotiations? Because I, I take your point. I actually agree that, you know, ultimately, if this were a fight to the end, Ukraine would win. I don't think Russia can achieve its military ambitions. But the question then is, at what cost? And that's why, you know, I'd be particularly interested in, in what could happen in a peace negotiation. Do you hold out any hope that Zelensky and Putin could agree to peace terms? And sort of, if so, what would an acceptable peace look like to you? I understand why Zelensky keeps saying that he wants to negotiate with Putin. And I think that this sends a right message. At the same time, I think that it maybe would be better for Ukraine to say that Russia is basically a terroristic state, because it is. And kind of you know, behave like Churchill behaved during Second World War, no negotiations with Hitler. I think that Zelensky is just trying to look nice. And I understand him for doing this. And I also think that like there is still hope, but I don't really believe that there will be... I mean, you can't fight fire with fire, but I don't believe that there is non, a non-military way to defeat Russia. I really don't believe that what Russia can say is actually negotiable. Plus, everything that they want Ukraine to do, the Nazifying us, <laughs> also you know, shortening the amount of soldiers and more rights to Russian language, all of these things are not possible. And the more they speak about this, the more we understand that it's impossible for us to have any normal relationship with Russia. So, so in my opinion, I think only power can hold Russia down. There is no other way. But of course, still, I understand Zelensky, and I think that he's doing the right thing. Although, of course, it would be really nice to see him behaving even more like Churchill and sending no sayings, sorry, we're not going to speak with them because they're crazy. And yeah. Interesting, those examples you chose. You said rights for Russian language. That's never going to happen. That's been sort of touted in the media I read as sort of the incredibly doable one. Of course, Zelensky can say, yes, we'll enshrine rights to the Russian language in the constitution. You don't agree? I don't agree. No, no, no. As a person who spoke Russian 20 years, that was my uh, mother tongue. I switched to Ukrainian in 2016 for many reasons, but like the most important reason was ideological. I just I didn't want to speak this language. So the, the problem with Russian language is that they use it as a weapon against Ukraine and against all other countries where there are Russian-speaking people. 
like Lithuania, Latvia, Bulgaria, and so on. And I switched to Ukrainian because I didn't want them to use me as an excuse to attack Ukraine again. And when the attack began again um, in February, a lot of my Russian-speaking acquaintances and friends, they just said, okay, so this is the end for me in Russian. I don't want to speak this language. I don't want them to protect me, you know, or whatever, to help me. I don't need their help. So this is actually a very interesting thing. Putin has said so many things about supporting Russians or like supporting Russian-speaking people in Ukraine and protecting them. But everything that he's doing or everything that he has been doing for the past eight years actually gives the opposite effect. You know, it backfired. He wants to protect Russian-speaking people and then he bombs Kharkiv, which was, well, mostly Russian-speaking, and Mariupol, he just destroys it. You know, and I don't believe that any of those people still want to be with Russia in any meaning. It's not just about, you know, being inside of one border, but it's also about having, you know, sharing culture and language and so on. So I really think that this is the end for Russian culture in general. No Tolstoy Dostoevsky, you know, we have our own Pushkins, we will be fine without theirs. But I mean, there will presumably be some people in Ukraine who do want to keep those parts of Russian culture, right? So, I mean, you, you wouldn't want to end up in a place where you're sort of demonizing anything Russian when you're in a country where lots of people have Russian Russian backgrounds. I, I see what you're saying in terms of Putin's you know, attempt has backfired, but there's potentially a danger in, in leaning into that, no? Yeah, I, of course, it's like, I'm, you know, this is not my place to tell other people, you know, you cannot read Pushkin anymore, or you cannot speak to your Russian relatives anymore. Of course, this is not what I'm doing here. I just believe that the position that Russian culture in general, not just language, had in Ukraine, it's not going to be the same. It's going to decrease. And I find it wonderful because Ukraine, for a very long time, Ukraine was a part, like it basically was occupied by Russia in many different ways, first Russian Empire, then USSR. And I just find it great that we're finally started moving away from this narratives, you know, because for Russia, it was very typical to forbid Ukrainian language and culture. You couldn't print anything in Ukrainian in the 19th century, even sheets of you know, music. So I think the faster we do this, the better. I thought that was a really, really interesting interview earlier. And I said that not because, you know, it was an interview where I, I didn't necessarily agree with everything that was said. If you've watched this show over the past few weeks, you know that my bias is very much towards Let's get a compromise peace deal as, as quickly as possible so we don't have to go through the pain of this, 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 this war. But what jumped out at me from that interview, and I think I'm seeing this in a lot of commentary from Ukraine, lots of posts on social media and lots of people who are speaking to people in Ukraine, is that it's an obvious point, really, which is that if you invade a country, it's very difficult to then come to some sort of compromise solution. And I, I, I do think it does seem obvious that all of Putin's actions have massively, massively backfired. Super interesting listening to someone who, you know, their first language was Russian. Kharkiv, where she's from, is, is in the east of Ukraine. So our understanding of what would have been the divide in Ukraine between the east and the west, you know, b before 2014, we would have assumed that she was on the eastern side. But after Russian bombing cities, it's kind of not a surprise that people were sort of like, well, maybe we don't want to compromise. As I said, that's one perspective. We will be platforming many perspectives from, from Ukraine and Russia throughout this conflict. But I did think that was, that was an interesting one to show you. One update as well for you. As I said there, I don't think the Russians can achieve their military aims. I think they can continue this war for a long time and cause a lot of damage. 
But the Russian defense military did today admit that 10,000 Russian troops are dead. And that's in you know, less than a month. And to put that in perspective, a decade in Afghanistan, there were 15,000 Soviet troops dead. So, and that was seen as, you know, people talked about the, the number of people coming back dead from Afghanistan, sort of really undermining the legitimacy of the Soviet state. I'm sure that's somewhat oversimplified. But it makes some sense. And so you can see that 10,000 in less than a month, it's a really, really big number. So I have to say at this point in time, I've got no idea what's going to happen next, but we will, we will keep covering the war and I'm not going to make many predictions. Next story. Martin Lewis's job is to tell households how they personally can save money. But given the cost of living crisis, he's almost set to give up. People are getting in yeah. touch with you all the time and they are very worried, aren't they, about what is coming? I I've been the money-saving expert since 2000. Um, I've been through the financial crash crash. I've been through COVID, which was mitigated by some of the measures the Chancellor put in place. This is the worst. Where we are right now, this is the worst. When I'm reading messages from people telling me that, you know, money prioritisation used to be, do I, do I go to the hairdressers or do I, do I go to the pub and have a takeaway? Now it's about I'm prioritising feeding my children over feeding myself. That is simply not tenable in our society. Mm. And there is absolute panic and it has not started yet. We're going to have about 10 million people in fuel poverty. We have a real absolute, not relative poverty issue going to come in the UK with food banks oversubscribed, with debt crisis agencies do not have any tools. And I need to say with the Chancellor coming on in a moment, forgive me, as the money saving expert who's been known for this, I am virtually out of tools to help people now. It's not something money management can fix. It's not something for those on the lowest incomes telling them to cut their belts will work. We need political intervention. That was a pretty powerful challenge to the government. And the next day, Martin Lewis got the chance to have a pop at a minister directly. That was as guest host on Good Morning Britain. Lewis read to Health Secretary Sajid Javid experiences of people who had contacted him on Twitter. Cosy on Twitter, my husband is on oxygen 24-7 and a ventilator at night. Without the price increases, we are already using around £180 a month for gas and electric. So that'll go up to 270 in April as a rough average and £360 in October. We don't have the heating on and sit with blankets on us. We lost his income of over £20,000 a year when he had to stop work. Mm -hmm. Clearly desperate. And another, Lisa on Twitter, I am disabled for 23 years and a single parent. My PIP, personal independence payment, has increased £3 a month, but council tax increased £5 a month, and my electricity is predicted to go up £70 from £76 a month to £143. I'm petrified as I don't have another £70 a month. I don't drink, I don't have Sky. Shocking. What help is there? for people with medical conditions and disability for a likely year-on-year -year doubling in energy bills? Well, for, for those people uh, that are on disability benefit or, or on PIP or some other kind of uh, support, those payments are regularly kept under review. They do often rise when we see rising inflation. I don't want to preempt uh, wh where they might go to in the future. That's clearly got to be a, a government-wide decision. But it is important that they are still there and available for people at the right level so that it can give them support that they are intended to do so. Those stories are heartbreaking and Javid's answer wholly unsatisfactory. Benefits are set to rise by 3.1% in April. 
But the rate of inflation over last year now stands at around 6%, with the Bank of England warning it will go over 7% in the coming months. What's worse, energy bills, which Martin Lewis's contacts were directly referring to, are set to rise by an average of 54%. 3.1% rise is not going to cover that. Lewis went on to say this. Centre's hat for a second and putting on my, my campaigner's hat. Secretary of State, people on oxygen concentrators, people on dialysis machine, people with electric wheelchairs are in panic and shock that their lives are going to be cut off because of these energy rises. I know we have cabinet government. I know you sit around that table. Please, as Secretary of State for Health, will you champion those people and make sure that we don't disable their lives going forward with what's about to happen in April? It's not a question. You don't have to answer or give me a comment. Actually, I want to to answer very straightforward. Yes, absolutely. Those are some of the most important people in our society. And that is exactly the kind of people that we should do everything we can support, including for my department and the NHS. We'll wait and see if Rishi Sunak does come up with something for these groups in Wednesday's spring statement. But I wouldn't have much confidence these are the exact people who the Tories have clobbered since 2010. So you've got Sajid oh, of course, these are the people we would help. These are exactly the people you have been demonising and making life miserable for, essentially, for 12 years now. Barnaby, I want to bring you in on this. What did you make of that exchange between Martin Lewis and Sajid Javid? Is he new comrade number one on our TV screens? Well, I think he may be detecting that there is a kind of class politics to inflation because rising prices on essential goods affect those who have least. And there's also a class politics, and this is at the point that I hope we'll come on to now, there's also a class politics to the deflationary policies that this government is pursuing on the sly. So the government's chosen this particular moment with rising energy and food prices, two hikes that hit the poorest hardest, to cut benefits. The real terms rises in benefits that have been announced so far are are, are actually cuts. They're below the level of inflation, two or 3% below the level of inflation. So it's just like Thatcher, who shrunk the money supply to fight inflation by taking money from the worst off through tax changes and benefit cuts. And now Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, on three quarters of a million pounds, I think, calls for wage restraints from working people. So there is a class politics in the attempt to shrink the money supply by making sure that the poorest pay the price. And people sitting on assets that have risen in value over decades and not just years are fine. And that's a stark indication of the skewed inflation, which also Jack Monroe and others have been uh, talking about recently. The inflation that we're seeing now is affecting cheaper food more than more expensive food. It's affecting the goods that poorer people buy more. The problem the government has is that tinkering at the edges can't solve these grand challenges. And you see ministers embarrassed and saying this. They know there's a problem with the model of British capitalism to which they're loyal. They know that we're facing a period of rising prices of food and of energy. They know that we're facing an inflationary period driven in part by those supply side pressures. And so even if they were willing to look at price and and wage controls as some kind of post-Keynesian economists are suggesting, we face a period of real crisis. There are answers, of course. We could nationalize the energy companies and use them, use their huge profits to keep bills down and then use them to transition to green energy. Because part of the long term thinking here is that we need stabler energy supplies, both for geopolitical reasons and also for economic reasons. And so we need to change our economic model so that we are uh, combining high interest rates now with spending uh, investments from central banks to escape the low investment quagmire of the 1930s. We need, in other words, an economic model that isn't only interested in producing low wage jobs 
jobs so that people aren't in a position to weather a, a crisis of rising prices. We need instead an economic model that's investing in working class people and in the saving of our planet from a climate catastrophe. But that's a very different kind of model from the one that the, the tinkering and, and the chaos crisis management that the Tories can offer. Even tinkering is probably maybe being a bit too kind to them. I think it, tinkering would be what Labour would do. I think the Tories is, 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 is even worse than that at this point. Let's stick with the cost of living crisis. Um, because in his spring statement this Wednesday, Rishi Sunak will be tasked with responding to that cost of living crisis. And as was mentioned by Martin Lewis, much of that crisis is driven by an increase in fuel costs. From next month, the energy price cap is rising by 54% meaning those on default tariffs paying by direct debit will see an increase of £693 to their energy bills per year. For an average household, that's going from £1,270 to £1,970. On Sunday, Rishi Sunak was asked about the consequences of those rises. How many people do you think will be in fuel poverty because of rising energy bills? Well, that's why we've acted, to make a difference to those. And the way that we've done it, in contrast to some of the other suggestions, I know you had Rachel Reeves on earlier, we acted to do things in a slightly more targeted way. So by providing £150 to people immediately in April, that obviously matters more to those on lower incomes with smaller fuel bills than it does to people on higher incomes. And that's a deliberate policy approach to make sure that we get targeted support to those on lower incomes. Uh, we also have a range of other schemes uh, to help people in fuel poverty. For example, one of the things we do every year is invest about a billion pounds to upgrade the energy efficiency of people who are in fuel poverty's homes. That saves them around £300 a year on their energy bill. And that's a, a long-term solution but to this problem. But that's now. And what I wanted to know is how many people you think could fall into fuel poverty because of all this. There are about 3 million, or there were in 2020, how much is that going to rise? Well, that, I think you we, must the, be looking at those figures. Well, yeah, and the, the actions we've taken, but I think, we, will make a big difference. But and, how and many people do you think? Are we talking about millions more? And Martin Lewis said it could be eight, ten million people well, could I, be in I, fuel poverty. Well, I don't, I don't know if he presented any analysis to, to show that. But you must be doing that analysis. Well, and you and must the analysis be we've done will show that the, impl the impact of the policies we put in place will disproportionately help those on lower incomes. To give you another thing, we, we so it's your, called your actions the, the are going to stop discount. more people falling into fuel poverty. Is that well, what you're I saying? Think, in, the actions of this government and previous Conservative governments over the last 10 years have meant that there are fewer people living in poverty today, over a million people fewer living in poverty so today. To remind you what Sunak has offered so far, those on low incomes will get a £150 council tax rebate and all households will get a £200 loan. Now that doesn't come close to covering the full £700 increase in fuel. The host there was talking about fuel poverty and the majority of that saving you have to pay back anyway from next year when fuel prices are expected to be even higher. And I'm also not sure where Rishi Sunak got that statistic about one million fewer people being in poverty. He didn't provide a source. And when Boris Johnson made a similar claim in 2020, the BBC asked Downing Street for once, they asked for, what is the source for this claim? And they never replied. In fact, the latest government statistics we can find show that relative poverty after housing costs has risen from 21% to 22% since 2010. And it's even more worrying when you look at the trends. This is from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation on Child Poverty. Children have had the highest poverty rates throughout the last 25 years. 25 years ago, a third of children lived in poverty. This fell to 28% by 2004-2005 and reached its lowest level of 27% in 2010-2011 to 2013-2014. Since then, child poverty has been rising, reaching 31% in the years 2019-2020. to 2020. Barnaby, 
like clockwork. The Tories come to power and declines in poverty go into reverse. Then they kind of gaslight us all and say, no, actually, millions of people have come out of poverty. We're just not going to give you a source or explain why we think that's true and why you should believe it. Well, they have a troubled history with statistics. Remember, only recently, before they discovered that poverty was falling, they claimed that crime was falling. Uh, They'd excluded fraud because it was a crime their friends committed, a crime they sometimes aided and abetted uh, when it came to COVID contracts. So they just cut that out and it wasn't real crime. And the rest of crime they told us was falling. It reflects a kind of arrogance, uh, a kind of born to rule, uh, buccaneering confidence. And I think a lack of much regard for the fact that four million children are now in relative poverty when you include housing costs. And it's been steadily increasing since actually about, yeah, about 2013. So in other words, just as the austerity cuts of the post-2010 regime began really to bite, poverty, child poverty, relative child poverty began to increase, and it's been increasing ever since. I think one big lesson for the left to take stock of here is the fragility of the previous period of declines in child poverty, quite impressive declines in the 2000s under New Labour. They were based mostly on cash transfers, on tax credits and benefits changes, which meant they were easy to pull away. They weren't embedded in institutions like the creation of the National Health Service, a past labour achievement that couldn't just be torn up by the next Tory government, or indeed something like right to buy and council housing, which couldn't just be torn up by a labour government very easily. So I think that we have to think now about how we advocate and demand for policies that don't just transfer cash in a redistributive way, in a way that can then be easily reversed, but establishes a more egalitarian set of institutions, a more egalitarian economy, which isn't reliant on cash transfers from the City of London, for example, which leaves us very ill-prepared to face a cost-of-living crisis and uh, allows Tories to come into power and send poverty through the roof. I think we need longer-term thinking on the left about how we change our economic model uh, so that these kinds of criminals aren't able to get away with this much more. Ukraine is an issue which has pretty much united people in Britain. Russia entered a war of aggression. Ukrainians have every right to resist. But in a speech to Spring Tory Party conference, Boris Johnson decided to introduce division where none was needed. Let's take a look. And I know that it's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time. I can give you a couple of famous recent examples. When the British people voted for Brexit in such large numbers, I don't believe it was because they were remotely hostile to to foreigners. It's because they wanted to be free, to do things differently and for this country to be able to run itself. So voting to leave a bloc of nations which we voted to join in the first place is the same as fighting off a war of aggression from an invading neighbour. And who are Remainers in this analogy? Are they Putin or is, or is the EU Putin and the Remainers are just people who tolerate Putin? In any case, if the comment was intended to provoke a reaction, it had the desired effect. Gavin Barwell is a former Tory minister and was Theresa May's chief of staff. He said, apart from the bit where voting in a free and fair referendum isn't in any way comparable with risking your life to defend your country against invasion, and the awkward fact that the Ukrainians are fighting for the freedom to join the EU, this comparison is bang on. Talk Radio's Julie Hartley Brewer also wasn't impressed. She said, even as a staunch Brexiteer, this is totally cringe from Boris Johnson. Comparing the vote to leave the EU with the Ukrainian people fighting for their lives against a foreign invader is an insult to their bravery and sacrifice. And the comment doesn't seem to have gone down too well in the cabinet either. 
Speaking to the BBC, Rishi Sunak struggled to defend Boris Johnson's choice of words. The Ukrainians fighting the Russians is like the British voting for Brexit. Would you have made that comparison? Well, I, I don't think the Prime Minister was making a direct comparison between these two things. Clearly, they're not directly analogous, and then that's not what he was saying. He quite clearly did make a comparison. Though they were in the very same sentence, Britons, like Ukrainians, have the instinct to choose freedom. I've got the entire quote here. They were, he was comparing them to... I'm just I, asking, would you have I think he, made he, that he was making He was making some, some general observations about people's desire for freedom. Clearly those two situations are not directly analogous. The Prime Minister doesn't think that, because they're clearly not. Would you have used those words? Would you have directed, would you have compared them so directly together? He was not directly comparing those two things. He was talking about freedom in general. Those two situations are not directly comparable. No one thinks that they are. The Prime Minister doesn't think that they are. So Rishi Sunak doesn't think Boris Johnson was making a direct comparison. Let's get up Johnson's exact words so you can judge for yourself. So I won't do an impression. I know that it's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time. I can give you a couple of famous recent examples. When the British people voted for Brexit in such large numbers, I don't believe it was remotely because they were hostile to foreigners. It was because they wanted to be free. Now that looks like a direct comparison to me. The Ukrainians and Brits are both freedom-loving people. The Ukrainians have expressed that love for freedom by fighting off the Russians. In the case of Britain, they expressed it by voting to leave. Speaking to Sky Health Secretary Sajid Javid also denied the obvious. What I heard from the Prime Minister was uh, the, the, basically the desire for self-determination in, in everyone. You know, no matter what country they're in, no matter what their circumstance is strong. I don't think in any way he was connecting the situations in Ukraine and the UK. And if we want to know what the Prime Minister thinks about Ukraine and responding, I mean, we can see for ourselves in terms of the support that he's provided, you know, rock-solid support compared to any other world leader. You don't, you don't think it was at all crass for the Prime Minister to make that comparison or to allude to a comparison. I, mean, the, the Prime I, don't, I don't think, I don't accept that he was comparing he, UK he, he and He mentioned Ukraine. one and he mentioned his, the other in the same his, point. His point. His point was about the importance of self-determination mm-hmm. and, and, the, and people, you know, whoever they are, wherever they are, they have this strong feeling of wanting to have freedom and determination. I'm just, the, I'm the just gently suggesting lives. that the self-determination, you know, shown by the Brits who voted to leave a political and economic union is not the same as the self-determination shown by people who are picking up guns and firing on invaders. And, and he wasn't saying, I think it's spurious to say that he was connecting somehow the UK and Ukraine in that saying. way. Barnaby, what did you make of Johnson's comments and those attempts at a defence? Well, actually, I thought the comments were quite telling. I mean, I didn't agree that our response should be limited to sort of horror and outrage that he could make the comparison. I wanted to know why he made the comparison. I thought he made it because he doesn't really care about freedom in either case. I don't think Boris Johnson supported Brexit because he wanted British people to be self-determining or because he wanted to uh, smash the uh, Imperial European Union. He's lining up with it now. I I think he supported Brexit because he thought it might be useful for his own career in the Tory party. And perhaps if there was an ideological basis, because he thought it could create a kind of Singapore on Thames of free trading, buccaneering British capitalism. I don't think it had very much to do with freedom, except the awful kind of freedom that Boris Johnson imagines, uh, which is the freedom to make lots of money. Similarly, I don't think he really cares about freedom very much in the case of Ukraine. If he did, he could have done one very simple thing right at the beginning of this crisis. It was the basic demand that the left and all decent people made, which was to ensure visa-free travel for Ukrainians so that Ukrainian refugees could get here in huge numbers. We had the farce of a British government saying that 
Ireland was opening itself up to mass crime because the Irish government was willing to quickly do that after the Brits said it was simply impossible to do it. Equally, if Boris Johnson uh, thinks that people have an instinct to choose freedom, I want to ask him who he thinks has that instinct. Does he think it's just people in Britain and just people in Ukraine? Does he think the instinct to choose freedom also exists in Saudi Arabia, where 81 people are murdered by the state so their blood could fill the red carpet for Boris Johnson's arrival as he goes to plead with them to turn on the oil tax? Does he think the instinct for freedom exists in Palestine, for example? So I think there's a deep disingenuousness to the language of freedom, which makes it very fitting that Boris Johnson can use it so casually disingenuously in comparing, obviously highly inappropriately, a referendum vote in Britain to leave the European Union and Ukraine being prevented from actually entering the European Union, as, as lots of Western Ukrainians want to do. I also think it's interesting that Boris said in this clip that uh, people don't hate foreigners, and that's why, and, and so we shouldn't think that the Brexit vote was an anti-foreigner vote, because Ukraine has provided in some countries of Europe a kind of model for refugee protection. Uh, the enormous uh, work that Polish towns and cities are doing to integrate Ukrainians, to ensure that they are able to go to school, kids quickly, that they can go to hospital, that they can work, that they have homes to live in. We never had a refugee crisis in these last few years in Europe. We had a crisis of unwillingness, for whatever reason, call it racism if you like, to welcome people fleeing despair. And don't make the mistake of thinking we welcome Ukrainians now uh, because they're white. The causality is almost the other way around. We've decided that Ukrainians are white because we dislike Putin and so it serves uh, the interests of the British and American and European states to see Ukrainians as heroes. That's not a very stable phenomenon. I don't know that Ukrainians will, will always be welcomed or that Eastern Europeans will always be welcomed in the West. We have to have a politics of supporting refugees and demanding the kinds of protections for them that some Ukrainians are now getting for everyone, as well as demanding that all Ukrainians get those protections. When Eurostar is able to offer free travel to Ukrainians across the channel, uh, it raises a very sick and a very dark question about why it is that so many people drowned in that channel, unable to get free tickets on Eurostar, why so many people fell from lorries and drowned uh, and died uh, trying to get across the English Channel. So I think we need to take from this moment a very different approach to refugees and migrants and to be critical of uh, the fair weather friends of refugees and migrants. And then lastly, I'll just say something about the sort of falsity of, of, of a split between Britain and the European Union that the Prime Minister has suggested here. We heard just a few years ago that there was some kind of fundamental difference between the politics of, uh, of Boris Johnson and the EU. Now, of course, they're both exactly lining up in lockstep. And some socialists uh, end up on the same side, uh, cheering on someone they called a fascist a few years ago when he prorogued Parliament, uh, because Boris Johnson and, and, and those socialists are both supporting the EU and NATO. So I think this raises big questions about whether Leave Remain really was a kind of clear dividing line in our politics, or whether in fact there are common interests that unite people like Boris Johnson and people like Ursula von der Leyen, and they're not the interests of people around the world, including desperate Ukrainians uh, who are now bombarded and can't find safety and sanctuary in Britain while the government dithers. Really well put, that point about Ukrainians aren't welcome because they're white, they're white because they're welcomed. I think that's a, a really piffy way of putting a super important point, because it does seem a bit like people of memory hold the fact that one of the big drivers for Brexit was polls had been racialized as some other that weren't welcome in the country and who we didn't have any control of whether they got here or not. And if Ukrainians are white, so are Poles. So, but it, it didn't serve the interests of the government at that point to say, no, we should have compassion towards these people. So they were racialized as another and were you know, a target of, of xenophobia. As you say, it could also be you know, th this welcoming attitude towards Ukrainians could be somewhat flimsy and potentially it will reverse when the Tories and other fingers of the establishment decide it's no longer in their interest to treat them as, you know, very welcome. Similar thing actually will, will be happening with Hong Kongers. So people from Hong Kong, they are people of East Asian background, of course, but they are seen as welcome. The Tories say these are the people we want in Britain, partly because they are seen as 
and this is just, you know, I, I think it's correct that we, you know, give visa-free travel to people from Hong Kong. I think it's correct that we give visa-free travel to people from Ukraine. But we should recognize why there are these very, very blatant double standards when it comes to our immigration policy. And it's because the UK government sees letting in Hong Kong migrants as a FU to the Chinese Communist Party, and they see letting in Ukrainian migrants or refugees as an FU to, to Vladimir Putin. So it, it's not really a moral thing, it's a geopolitical thing. But, you know, all refugees are welcome wherever they're from. So this isn't to say that we should be skeptical of the right of Hong Kongers or, or Ukrainians to come here. Next story. The spirit of the Cold War was alive and well at this weekend's Tory Spring Conference. This was party co-chair Oliver Dowden. Conference. In March 2022, we must ask this. Does the torch of freedom shine as strongly in Europe today? Could Margaret Thatcher, have, could have, she have foreseen that the Conservative Party would meet here in Blackpool more than 30 years later with the precious freedom of Europe once again under threat from Russia? A generation of Conservatives understood the threat of tyranny. Their opposition to it defined their conservatism. So whilst much has changed about our party, this much remains the same. It is conservatives who always carry the torch of freedom. Now, the idea that conservatives carry the torch of freedom is just a joke, an offensive joke. We've already spoken on this show about Boris Johnson's hypocrisy in sanctioning Russia while he supplies literal arms to Saudi Arabia. But as Dowden invoked Margaret Thatcher, let's look at some recent history. This is Margaret Thatcher with one of her closest allies when she was Prime Minister, General Pinochet. Now, Pinochet was not a lover of freedom. In fact, he came to power as Chile's dictator by leading a military coup against a democratically elected government, that of Salvador Allende. And this was not a bloodless coup. In fact, it was incredibly brutal. An article in The New Yorker explains what happened immediately after Pinochet took power. Pinochet's soldiers rounded up thousands in the capital's sports stadiums, and then and there, suspects were marched into the locker rooms and corridors and tortured and shot dead. Hundreds died in such a fashion. One was the revered Chilean singer Victor Jara, who was beaten, his hands and ribs broken, and then machine-gunned, his body dumped like trash on a back street of the capital. Britain regarded Pinochet's killing spree as unseemly and sanctioned his regime by refusing to supply it with weapons. That is, until Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. In 1980, the year after Thatcher took office, she lifted the arms embargo against Pinochet. He was soon buying armaments from the United Kingdom. Pinochet would remain leader of Chile until 1990, and during the latter years of his rule, he would visit Margaret Thatcher every year. Pinochet would bring his family to Britain to enjoy fine meals and whiskey with the Thatchers, and the close friendship would continue after both had left office. In 1998, Pinochet would end up on house arrest in Britain. That was on the order of a Spanish judge for human rights abuses. The New Yorker write, During Pinochet's prolonged quasi-detention thereafter in a comfortable home in the London suburb of Virginia Water, Thatcher showed her solidarity by visiting him. There and in front of the television cameras, she expressed her sense of Britain's debt to his regime. I know how much we owe to you for your help during the Falklands campaign. And she also said, get this, it was you who brought democracy to Chile. 
Of course, Pinochet did not bring democracy to Chile. He rounded up the Democrats and had them tortured and then shot. That's, that's Margaret Thatcher's idea of, of democracy. Let's go back to Dowden's speech, though. The danger has not passed. The Corbynistas, they are still there. You know, Starmer, he cannot resist kowtowing to the cancel culture brigade because his base are the cancel culture brigade. He's frightened to defend women's rights or protect our heritage from vandals because he fears he would be cancelled. And he won't, he won't argue against state handouts because his party don't believe in rolling back the vast COVID state at all. And he can't even get his own MPs to vote for measures to stop those self-righteous environmentalist activists blocking our roads because the lockers-on and the gluers-on are his own Labour councillors. And that, that is why we cannot let him into office. Mate, there's a war going on. Why are we talking about cancel culture? Wherever you sit on the cancel culture, it exists, it kind of exists, it's concocted. There are more important things going on at the moment. And it's also worth saying, the only people that Keir Starmer has cancelled are the socialists that you and your base hate. And who your hero, Margaret Thatcher, would have had killed, you know, if she was in charge in Chile. Her mate was having them killed in Chile. These are, these are not the people that you or your party have ever cared about. Anyway, those clips I've shown you were from Oliver Dowden's Twitter feed. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the whole speech as much as I wanted to watch all of it. But a transcript is available online. And this is how the speech crescendoed. As I walk with my children through the calm suburbia of Hertfordshire, its values so derided by the left, I actually reflect on the great fortune we have to live in a nation defined by stability, security, and yes, conservatism. For me, the privet hedges of suburbia are the privet hedges of a free people, and I will make it my mission as chairman to defend those values and those freedoms. Barnaby, you're very good with words. Your assessment of Oliver Dowden's oratory skills. Well, this is the politics of having no answers, because behind those sweet picket fences, people in those suburbs find their energy bills rising, fuel prices rising, inflation returning while pay is stagnant. In 2017, the NUT, as it then was, National Union of Teachers, developed an app where parents could look at lost funding to education in every area. And parents found the huge gaping hole in their children's education funding where the Tories had pulled it away. I remember one of the first cuts in 2010 was to building schools for the future, to, to build new uh, schools uh, for kids. We now have yearly winter crises in the NHS, which when I was growing up, not so long ago, I was told were a thing of the past. This country's creaking at the seams and we don't talk about it enough. We have foreign journalists. The New York Times does big investigations into how uh, British society is falling apart in the face of cuts which have devastated communities. And we've just stopped talking about it. Instead, we have this politics of cheap distraction. It has its origins, of course, in Nixon's southern strategy in the United States to get working class people uh, to worry about uh, uh, guns and God and embryos in order to vote against their class interests. And the Tories are trying the same thing here. But it's particularly macabre to see the sorts of uh, rhetoric that accompany this. He talks about rolling back the vast COVID state at a moment when people need more help, not less, to deal with rising prices, and when the Chancellor claims he's going to offer more help and then offers tiny crumbs because he has to deal with just this kind of ideological rubbish from people who have a commitment to small state politics, which doesn't mean they want to shrink the state that polices us and that imprisons migrants. 
But it doesn't mean they want to shrink any of the repressive arms of the state. It doesn't mean they want to shrink the military. It only means they want to shrink those bits of the state that might help people when they face uh, economic crisis. So instead of a politics of solutions, we have a politics that tries to incite fear, to recruit constituencies to the politics of order and hierarchy against the politics of freedom. We hear derogatory remarks about uh, heritage needing to be protected from vandals. Those vandals are people who want us to be aware of the colonial history of our country because they believe, we believe, that everyone should live in freedom. No one should labor on plantations in order to build vast homes for a few. And it's because we believe that, it's because we support campaigns for Black Lives Matter, that, that we all also believe that no one in the present should suffer with rising heating and food bills and worry about how they're going to feed their children and keep their children warm at the same time. He talks, this Tory minister, about self-righteous activists on our roads. He means insulate Britain, people who went onto the roads precisely to demand that our homes should be insulated so that we would be protected from rising heating bills and also help to save the planet. So this is the politics that almost resolutely, almost proudly, almost with pride and, and, and delight tells us that it has no answers and only preaches distraction and division. It's very sad to see, but it's not very surprising. Thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. There has been a lot of love in the chat. We'll get you back super soon. It's been great to be here, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for everything you do. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>